When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and a very warm welcome back to the Crash MotoGP podcast, season two, episode 34, at the start of a brand new season of MotoGP action, the 74th year of the Premier Class, 12 teams, 24 riders and a massive 21 race calendar that starts off in Qatar in a few weeks time and will end in Valencia come November and we will be here every single week to keep you hopefully informed and entertained. My name is Harry Benjamin. Alongside me uh, will be Crash MotoGP editor Pete McLaren and former British Championship winning rider turned broadcaster Keith Hewan, plus a myriad of guests throughout the year. Uh, Now, before we dive in to all things MotoGP, uh, we're back for another season. Keith, Pete, pleasure to be alongside you as ever. Um, Looking forward to this season so far. It's got all the makings. It's going to be another cracker, Keith. It's already been going on, hasn't it? There's so many rumours flying around already. And we've just had our big signing on Monday as well with Bagnaia now signed up for another two years in 23 and 24. And I think that just goes to show the reason I've jumped straight in there right at the beginning of our conversation regarding that is I think that gives some indication of how intense this year is going to be and moving forward. We've had that slight changing of the guard, haven't we, with Rossi out. I mean, Valentino Rossi, almost I feel like, who's he? It's really strange that we've only been minutes since he retired. And like it's like he's, he's fell off the edge of the cliff and, and very few people are talking about him. Quite right, of course, because he's yesterday's man now. But what an interesting scenario we've got. Enea Bastianini going good in the tests as well. That little bit of changing of the guard, the Ducati shapeshifter, which again, technology is running wild. Is it the right way to go? Isn't it the right way to go? We're talking about a prototype series, of course, in MotoGP. So therefore, you know, I quite like the idea of of all these innovations, but um, there's got to be the cost factor and whether it's ever going to be used on road bikes or somewhere in the future. So there's a lot to discuss this year, not to mention, you know, COVID now receding in the way that it seems to be in most places, most markets around the world as well, is that... Some of these trips that they've got coming up, I mean, the, 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 the gaps between Qatar and Indonesia, for instance, massive, massive flights to, to get to and from these Grand Prix. It's going to be an absolutely, the only one word I can use, knackering year. Everybody's going to be worn out by halfway through the year. And I think that's going to be a factor this year as well. I'm exhausted just from hearing you say all of that. And uh, I'm not flying to all of them. But again, we will be here for every single weekend as well. And as you say, uh, Keith, the start of the season, uh, isn't right really without preseason testing, which of course for the first time has just finished uh, the new Mandalika circuit in Indonesia. Uh, Pete still trapped in Thailand. Uh, this was the first time we and the riders, I suppose, really got a glimpse at the kind of machinery and the fairings and the winglets of everything coming on for the start of the season. Can you give us a bit of an overview of what went down and then? Uh, well, actually, no. Keith wants to. Keith wants to let, speak. Me just, let me just stop you there for a second. <laughs> Trapped in Thailand. Such hardship that you have, Peter, I must say. <laughs> I was just always I was just looking at people who watch this on our YouTube channel, which make sure you subscribe to the Crash Motor GP YouTube channel. It just always looks a little bit, I don't know, the wall just looks a bit drab behind you, Pete. It's, it's not too dissimilar from a, a prison cell. <laughs> Apart from the picture, obviously, on the wall. But either side, it's just a bit drab. But either way, it's always a pleasure to have you on board. Um, how is Thailand, first of all? And then can you talk us through a little bit of testing as well and all the things you picked up from the last couple of weeks uh yeah well first of all obviously yeah it started off in malaysia which is right next door to thailand and and uh, but unfortunately as we mentioned previously getting into malaysia and the restrictions at the test were, were pretty intense so you know restrictions are easing in, in many parts of the world particularly europe but certainly in uh, in southeast asia it's it's still you know 
the rules around getting into the country, especially for MotoGP, people had to stay in one of two hotels. You basically had to go from the, the hotel to the track and back, and that's it. Lots of testing. You know, MotoGP has been really careful to keep the governments on side. They're being very cautious. They don't, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not perhaps as confident as in Europe and other places of just opening up again. So we're still seeing a lot of restrictions over here. And that's, um, you know, it's a good thing that the tests went ahead without problem. But as, as Keith says, you know, you've got a lot of travel. You still got at the moment this problem of if you if you're a rider and you fail one of these seemingly endless tests before one of your flights, you could miss a race. You know, and, and that's something that a lot of the riders spoke about during testing. It's not obviously the obvious thing. You talk about the speed and the bikes, but it's something that's hanging over them. You know, one of the most tense parts of a race weekend will probably be getting the first, you know, PCR test result that says you can actually get on the plane and even go to the race. And with all of these races so close together, the chances of that happening are bigger and bigger. So while perhaps the risk of getting a serious illness is, has thankfully receded, at the moment, there's still restrictions as far as passing tests to get, to get into countries, to get access to the track. And while that exists, there's going to be a lot of tense you know, moments for the riders. We saw team members that, were, that were, couldn't go to all of the tests, either couldn't leave Europe or couldn't go on from, from Malaysia to, uh, to the Indonesian test. So... It's, it's, it's still a delicate situation, I think you could say. It's still, it's still not situation normal for the World Championship. But let's hope that, that, you know, and some of the riders were saying this, that maybe it's time for, you know, now, now everyone, everybody's vaccinated and things like that. And, you know, that maybe hopefully the paddock can return to more normality and that risk of missing races just because you fail a test will recede. Now, getting onto the actual track action, I think, as you guys have said, basically to sum it up, it's close. I think we were worried. Keith was speaking last year. We were always speaking about the end of this technical freeze. Will somebody get a big advantage? You know, something they've had in the pipeline. Will the gaps get bigger? To be honest, from what we've seen in testing, not at all. Everything's just as close, if not closer. We've seen the top sort of almost 20 riders within one second. Also on race pace, even average pace, it's been top 10 within half a second. So five different bikes regularly in the top six close as you like. So there's been, at the moment, it's as open as ever. We've seen the full range of developments as far as you know, big changes at Honda, also at Ducati, Aprilia, Suzuki have surprised with, with the number of changes they've got. KTM have gone for a completely different approach of sort of pinpointing small detail changes on their current bike to try and really understand sort of what they need from the bike. You saw Yamaha, I mean, if you ask Quattararo, the word he uses is the same. Now, he doesn't mean literally, but you know that gives you an idea of just how little that bike has changed. So you've got the whole range of things. And yet, when you put all that together on track and in two different tracks, the lap times are incredibly close. But I think you need a word of caution there, Pete, don't you, really? With all of these tests, 90% humidity in Sepang, that's not normal. A track breaking up in Mandalika, that's not normal. You've got a situation where these times that are done, and I agree with you, it looks ever so tight when you look at lap times and the like and you look at sheets but in a real-time situation where you've got motorbikes traveling on the track at the same time in a race you've got a ducati that's still eight to ten mile an hour faster than anything else in a straight line which means that, that into a braking area you're always going to have a ducati underneath you going in there so it's going to mess up that perfect lap that the yamaha might be on because the yamaha is still slow the point being is that in a race situation Test times don't always equate to results. It's not a situation where you can, you can get a bit of a, you know, I'm, I think it's wonderful that Aprilia are right in the action with, with both Vinales, who we know always goes good at testing at the beginning of the year and then falls away as the rest of the year comes on. Hopefully that won't be the case for him again this year, but I suspect it will be. Alicia Spargro, we know how quick he is over a one-lap wonder type shot. So we're in that situation. You know, the big standout for me was Anaya Bastianini, who, who carried on his trajectory, if you like, in the upward uh, momentum. Luca Marini looked good as well in his testing. So th there are one or two bright spots that are going on in MotoGP, but I'm always massively sceptical, and I just don't believe that these couple of tests that they've had are indicative of that much as we start to move on into proper racing terms. I mean, Qatar is an oddball race anyway. Um, track's always clean, which is lucky. It's amazing considering it's in the middle of a desert, but the, the, well, it's not anymore because the, the city's caught up with the track now. <laughs> it used to be in the middle of the desert. Now it's it's being swamped by buildings. But the, the point being is that Qatar are different because of the, the you know the, the temperatures and the dew point in the evening when the lights come on and so on and so forth. Um, it's a bit of an odd one. And then, of course, Indonesia. 
Have they got much in the way of data? I don't think they have. They had a one-meter line. Now, that's another thing that's going to be an almighty cock-up when we get to Indonesia. They could only work on a meter or two meters of racetrack um, because the track was in such disgusting order. You know, even Argentina, that was, was quite often muddy and dirty when we first get there, cleans up reasonably well. But the Indonesian track didn't clean up at all, and they didn't seem to have the wherewithal to be able to get it cleaned up. And then we had rocks that were coming out of it. They said, well, we've never had that before. And then Chaz Davies, boom, smashes them in the teeth <laughs> to say that, yes, we did. When we were out there for the World Superbikes, we had the same problem with, with World Superbikes breaking the track up. Apparently, um, they didn't use the, the stones in the mix of tarmac. I know nothing about tarmac, so please don't shoot me down didn't use the right mix of stones that they would have had to have imported. They used something local. It hasn't bonded as well as it should have bonded. And with the power of these bikes through such a small area, um, is spitting the rocks out. And you only had a look at the riders. I mean, you mentioned it, Harry, before we came on air. Great big spatter marks. And in Kota, we had, you know, when they, they diamond cut the top of the surface, we had all that dust, which sort of shot blasted the bikes and didn't do your lungs a lot of good and all the rest of it. You're breathing in cement dust or concrete or whatever it is that comes up from rocks. And then we get to Mandalika and they're chucking dirty great big rocks through the windscreen at you. I mean, it makes you wonder what these people think like sometimes. I mean, I, I really don't get it. And how they're going to fix that with the time scale they've got, what was it, five weeks between that test and when we go there for the race, they're not going to be able to do anything in that time. They're going to sweep it clean and we're probably going to have this problem when we get there. Hopefully the line will be wider. Again, it comes back down to testing. You can all go around single file, put your quick lap in on a track that's cleaning up. But the second you've got, you know, 24 motorbikes side by side down into turn one and you've got the bit in the middle has got the grip and everywhere else hasn't, going to be a problem. This is the, that, that is the main talking point that has come out of testing, isn't it, Pete? Because it, it seems like 25% of the track needs resurfacing. I think Alex Marcus said turn one, it's almost like a completely different tarmac. And as Keith alluded to there, it's the 20th of March is the day of the Grand Prix, but it needs to be completed before that. How much of a worry is that going to be for not just the riders, but the organisers too, to get this track up to standard? I mean, there, there were rumours that the race might be delayed. So that, that was how sort of seriously this issue was being taken. And they, they've said, look, we are going to keep to the date. It's going to be done a minimum of a week before. But I mean, that, that's as you guys have been saying, that's, that's sort of a one-shot chance, isn't it? That means they're going to have to get it spot on first time with this resurfacing and i mean data wise obviously half the, the big purpose of the test really was to give michelin data for the tires well i mean whether there was any meaningful data with such an amount of dirt on the track anyway is up for debate but now there's going to be 25 percent of it that they won't have ridden before i mean what, what will that do but you know, in fairness, we've seen we've seen problems with the surface, haven't we, at other tracks? We've seen, obviously, Silverstone had drainage problems. We've seen Kota, they've resurfaced. We've seen Sepang when they had the, the drainage issues. So, you know, this kind of thing does happen. But you are surprised, Keith brings the example up of Chaz Davis, that they had a race last year. And, and yet that that's when it seemed the perfect sort of scenario. Send World Superbike. They get their first, you know, they, they get the honor of the first race on this track. But also it... it should spot any issues like this, shouldn't it? And and yet here we are, we come to the test and suddenly, you know, it's a big problem, clearly. And it's a problem that needs this emergency sort of resurfacing. So it's it's not ideal. And obviously it's not just the track surface. There's a lot, lot of building work going on around the track. When you look at sort of satellite images, the, you can see how quickly the, the, the area around the track is changing. You know, houses that were there are not there anymore and things like that. And you, this is where all this dirt and dust seems to be coming from. But you had the extraordinary situation on the first day of riders being told to go and clean the track. Now, I mean, I can't ever remember that happening, you, you know, actually ordering riders to do, I think they had to do 20 laps each by a certain time. Uh, and some riders was, were kind of fine with it. Well, hey, that's, that's the best way to clean it. And others were really unhappy about it and pointing out, look, you know, different bikes handle differently in those kind of condi conditions anyway, sort of low grip anyway, um, saying, look, I shouldn't be ordered to do this. So, I mean, it was a, it was a strange test. That, that's how it started. And then it finished with this sort of these problems with the, the track breaking up. So, yeah, a strange test. And as you say, how do you draw any conclusions from it? You can't really. What it means is that we go into Qatar. And to be honest, it'll be a real opening round. And what do I mean by that? Usually we've had testing, haven't we? We've had testing at Qatar three days, five days, six days. They know the track by the back of their hand. They, they turn up for Friday practice. They've got a setup. They pretty much know which race tire they're going to use. It's, it's fine-tuning. This year, you know, it's, it's starting from scratch. And Keith says Bastianini, 
you know, you've got Bastianini, he'll turn up at Qatar. He can bolt on, if you like, the setup that Peko Bagnaia used, Johan Zarco, Jorge Martin, three guys that were on the podium last year. And he's got a really good starting point with that bike, where the other guys with newer bikes could, you know, they've got to start from scratch and have a completely green, or in the case of Qatar, sort of dusty, sandy colored track that's going to be changing throughout the weekend. Forget about the riders, think about the techs. I mean, those guys went there to get data. I mean, data is everything, particularly when it's as tight as it is at the moment, and they've got nothing. And it's not just a case of cleaning the track. I mean, they did, you know, right, the riders had to go around. <laughs> how many times have we had, how many millions of pounds worth of track cleaners was that, I wonder? <laughs> if you consider rider wages and the cost of the motorcycles that they were using as track cleaners. You do get it sometimes to run a groove in a track, I suppose, to pang, you know, sometimes in the test, the first day is all about just that, you know, installation laps, if you like, more than anything. And, and the track cleans up and it evolves into something that's a bit more like it. You know, it doesn't help when they've run a Ferrari, you know, corporate day there the week before and there's rubber everywhere and junk all over the track. It happens. But Mandalika, I've got to say, is this denial situation that you end up quite often. I mean, you being in Thailand, Pete, will... will be susceptible. I mean, obviously, I've got a fairly heavyweight Asian connection, so I, I won't speak too badly. But face and loss of face is a major issue in Asia generally. And somebody somewhere has lost a bit of face over the fact that this track is not in the order it should be in. And therefore, the buck has probably gone all the way around the offices to try and find a way out of this. Um, as an example, I remember sitting in a bank once checking my bank statement in the middle of Thailand, as it turned out. And um, there was like sort of a thousand baht missing uh, out of my bank account. And the bank closed and I was sat in the bank foyer for an hour after closing. Imagine doing this in the UK while these people hid behind the counter. And every now and again, the manager would pop his head over. They couldn't find the thousand baht. What it was, it was taken in a fee, as it turns out in the end. But the whole bank wouldn't close <laughs> until this lunatic... Um, had left the building. Um, and, and that's the situation you're up against. Somebody has to take responsibility for what's happened. And despite the fact they knew it in World Superbikes from last year, and Chas Davis was very, very straightforward in the fact that they had been given that information from the World Superbikes last year, that the track was breaking up. Point being, you can't sweep um, that clean. You can sweep the rocks off, but if they just keep reappearing, if the surface is breaking up, as as we're told it is, I haven't been to Mandalika, so I don't know anything about it other than what I've read and who I've spoken to. Um, but the track surface was breaking up. In fact, Pete, we talked about it before we came on air, didn't we? You, you mentioned that they never even ran the practice starts until late on, so it didn't cause any track damage while they were still testing. So, you know, and when they run the track starts, I mean, the, the, those motorbikes launch now like racing cars. They spit like mad junk out the back. They've got so much grip and forward motion. Um, that the track breaks up in places. Now, are they going to be able to fix that in five weeks? If they can fix it, as as Harry said, you know, the week, you know, up to the week before, it should be ready. You've still got the oils that are going to be coming out. Again, it depends on the mix they've put in it. Where is it? Has it been a local mix? Has it been a, you know, something that they've imported to try and get it right? So many questions. And when you've got all of this, I mean, it's a big deal for them in Indonesia and a big deal for Dorna. Dorna have been trying to get back to Indonesia for a long time. It's a massive market. And that is a place they want to be. Nobody wants to cause trouble for the track or for the organisers or for the country, but it's got to be right. I mean, no. just to say, one of the, the issues, or one of the areas that's being repaved is that start-finish straight. That, that's part, it's coming from the sort of the, the final corner to about corner five or six, I think it is. So, because the issue they had as well with the practice starts was that the bikes were spinning up. That's how slippy it was because the position of the grid is a long way from the final corner. So it, it wasn't being cleaned. And they were saying, look, if you qualified on pole position, you'd actually be in a real disadvantage if the, if the race occurred. So yeah, they had the practice starts they actually sort of moved them to lunchtime on the final day. And then there was this sort of circuit inspection. So it told you that there was something not right. And then subsequently the announcement comes out about the resurfacing. But I mean, on the other side of the coin, the riders said the track is very safe as in the layout. They like the layout of it. The gravel traps are great. Uh, Luca Marini said said there's two or three <laughs> corners that are some of the best in the world. So a few guys said it was a bit short, but so in terms of the layout, in credit to them, you know, the riders liked it. They said it's safe. The walls are plenty far enough away, but they've clearly got you know the clock's ticking to to solve the surface issue for this first race. And and then who knows about the weather? As we saw, 
you know, like you can have, as with the superbike event, some big storms there. And, uh, you know, it's just another thing, isn't it, to add, add, to, the, uh, add to the equation. So, yeah, there's a, there's a, lot, there's a, a lot of uncertainty in general going into this first race in Qatar, given everything that's happened. Only two days, of course, at Sepang. Sepang is a circuit without much uncertainty, if you like, in that the teams and riders all know it really well. It's got a good mix of corners, everything's stable, but they only had two days there, not the usual three. Um, you know, th there's a lot, there's a lot that they still need to find out about these bikes going into this first race. Well, we will certainly. And yeah, it was crossed. Ducati again that came up with the business, wasn't it? Ducati and their shapeshifter. I mean, that just Gigi Delinia. What's in that man's head? <laughs> I, I once asked him, where does he get these ideas? You know, where do, I said, do you, do you sort of wake up in the night and write them down or, or what? You know, of course. I mean, like, but he looks he looks like one of these mad professors. If you saw him in one of these Hitchcock films or whatever, you, he'd be right in place, wouldn't he? But it's because our rule book, and again, Harry, I know that you've been involved with, with race car rule books, which are like sort of volume 10 and this thick. Whereas it's still our, our our rule book for MotoGP and technical regs and stuff is still quite quite small, which I think is wonderful because it gives that opportunity still to, to make those slight changes. I suppose it's just annoying for most of the factories. It's Ducati that seems to always lead the way on innovation, and that's that's not lost. You know, on it's, them, I'm it's sure. funny though, Keith, isn't it? Because ever since the rear hole shot device turned into a ride height device, by which we just mean it can be used around the track, isn't it? The clock was always ticking on the front, wasn't it? I mean, it's the natural evolution. And yet again, as you say, it's Ducati that do it first. We have that video that comes out from Piro at the, the shakedown test of him doing the practice start. And you clearly see he presses one button, doesn't he? One switch and both the front and back go down. As soon as you saw that, it was immediately, they can do that around the lap. Because it's, it's, we know from past experience of how these ride height systems to whole shot to ride height, that's how it goes. And then you're, you're on a hunt for, for pictures, aren't you? We, we were lucky we had Hazarin, local photographer at Sepang, who people might not know, but he took one of the most famous pictures in MotoGP, the one from 2015 of Rossi looking over his shoulder out of the penultimate corner at Marquez on the floor. That was by Hazarin. He's, he's been, you know, he's, he's part of the furniture at Sepang. And uh, he, he asked if we wanted any particular pictures from the test. We got Golden Goose there, our usual photography suppliers doing all the usual stuff. So I said, yeah, you know, what a photo feature on ride height devices, whole shot devices. So he was photographing those and, and he sent over, as we say, we're all looking for this lower Ducati because after we've seen Piro start, we know it's there. So we're all looking for it on track. <laughs> Hasbin sends the pictures, and I, you know, and then to, just to rewind a couple of years, when the Yamaha first came out with the, the rear whole uh, shot device, I was at Sepang for the shakedown, took some pictures, and it looked like the front went down. And I thought, are they moving the front as well? And so I went to some senior tech people in the paddock, what do you, what do you think? And they, they were kind of like, well, it kind of looks like it does, but it's, to be honest, it's deceptive because of the different sort of angles and pitches that the bikes have. But the person there told me, and this is where it came back two years later, he said, the way you tell is this, take a picture of the suspension in pit lane, the normal position of the front fork, compare the position, the gold bit, if you like, to speak in layman's terms that you can see at the bottom of the fork leg. Take a picture of that when they do the start and compare the difference. And that's conclusive. Don't get caught up in bodywork wheels because it, if it's a different angle, it, it'll look different. That's the conclusive proof. So there we are, we're looking at these pictures. To be honest, the factory Ducati, it was like Hazarin, it's not much different. Anyway, in credit to him, he came back a day later and he had those pictures of Zarco, which was the dream scenario. Same rider, same corner, ride height device on, ride height device off. And you could clearly see that with the ride height device on, the front suspension was still compressed, even with the front wheel off the ground. And so that sort of was the conclusive proof that they are running this system already. So as Keith says, an another gizmo for the other factories to ca catch up with. Well, that, that's... Or not, because I think, sorry, Harry, I know you keep trying to get in on this. But... <laughs> you sound like a stuttering two-stroke. <laughs> hey, no, you, you, you keep the on talking. The matter is, though, they might only be able to use this. The, the cost involved in that development for something they may only have for a year, because at the end of the day, it could be bad. They can use it this year if it's within the rules. Um, but I think next year, if my memory serves me right regarding the, the rule book, if it's out, outlawed for the, the coming year, it could be outlawed this year, but they, they, because they've done it within the rules, it stays. But next year, it could be out. So it's a very costly situation to get to. It's the development that costs the money, not the actual production of the, of the kit to make it work. That's relatively cheap in comparison. But developing this stuff costs a lot of money. 
And Ducati obviously have. A it was lot interesting, of Keith, because we obviously asked uh, Sahara San, the, the head of the Suzuki project, did a media debrief before the Indonesian test, and he was asked about, you know, have you got a system like this under development? And, and he said no, and he pretty much said that they're not planning one for this year. And, and sort of, if you're a rider, you probably, it's not quite what you want to hear, is it? When someone comes out with a gizmo, you want to hear, oh, yeah, we've got one of those just ready, you know. But anyway, because there are rumors about, as you say, is this, does it fit entirely within the rules? Ducati have been pretty clear. And you've got to say, they wouldn't be running it unless they were confident. We had Danny Aldridge on the show explaining how he checks now, doesn't he? He's got this more complicated system, a clear system take all the power sources off the bike, show him how it works, everything else. So you've got to believe that that, that it will pass all of the checks. But yeah, it sounds like Suzuki are in no rush. And um, But as a rider, you know, do you want to hear that? I don't know. Probably probably why Bang Nye has signed for another two years then. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, He's getting ahead of the curve. A perfect segue, I think, to talking about that signing, which literally just broke before we uh, hit the record button, really. Bang Nye has confirmed that he will go uh, with Ducati all the way through till uh, 2024. And uh, Keith, you spoke about it right at the top of the show, but this is... This is a big deal because, you know, to, to get this on the dotted line shows obviously their commitment to each other. But also it, it means that that's one seat less for all the other riders to start thinking about because I think Pete spoke about it so much last year. This is the time where actually riders thinking about, OK, what am I going to be doing next year already? It's where Ducati are ahead of the game and it's where Yamaha are not or haven't been in recent times. It's getting those signatures signed up, sorted, that pathway, that clear pathway sorted. Ducati are, are right on that. I mean, it's not just their bike development, it's their personnel development as well. I mean, it's it's, it's a brilliant signing. And I'm sure Magnaia, as Ducati, would be absolutely happy to have that signature for those two years. He is hot, hot, hot property. Um, and I can't imagine the financial incentive there must be there as well to get him signed up for 23-24. Brilliant. A really good signing. Great team, going from strength to strength. Could you see any other winning the world title this year? Motorbike racing is a funny thing, isn't it? <laughs> Ducati have still got that pleasure to come. It's not happened to them for a long time. It, it makes, I learned it the makes, hard way last year. Predict if you dare. <laughs> <laughs> it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, Banyar and Ducati? I mean, it, you know, after the end of season that they had last year. And perhaps we're perhaps also seeing that Ducati, they've tried getting the big names like Lorenzo, and we've seen them do that. And it took even until the second season for even someone as talented as Lorenzo to get on terms with that bike. They've now got, as Keith says, they've got these riders, young riders coming up. They're already winners on that bike. So that whole, that whole process of adapting to the Ducati, understanding its strengths, they're doing that whilst they're learning MotoGP and they're, they're, they're ready, aren't they? That you can just plug them into the factory team almost. They've now got the security of having Banyaya, proven guy who can win, as we saw, four races, fight for the world championship. He's now done and dusted. You know, how long will they wait for the second seat? I mean, you, Bastianini has made no secret of the fact he he wants to be a factory Ducati rider. Jorge Martin also. There was a, actually a little bit of niggle in some of the debriefs where... You know, Martin Cedar, actually, he's already talking about wanting to be in the factory team. I don't understand why he's, you know, so you could see they're already thinking about this. Um, you also had, I can't remember which rider said, but um, Alex Marquez actually said, right from testing, riders are trying to impress. He said, you know, people are pushing as hard in testing, partly because they, they want to put themselves in the window for the contracts because they know now is the time, you know, to get yourself noticed. So, yeah, it's. Uh, he's the fourth person to sign, we should say, for, for 2023. So Mark Marquez is already confirmed, uh, Brad Binder and Morbidelli. So he's the fourth guy. Imagine how the managers are running around between the sheds. <laughs> it's about time they did some work for their cash. They're having, they're having quite a hard job management trying to get it all nailed down now, personal managers and the like. It was always one of my favourite spotting places, sat on the deck of Erta, the International Race Teams Association, the big silver trucks in the middle of the paddock. They're the authority, if you like, of everything that matters. And um, you just watch scurrying about between the barriers and under the steps and the stairs, managers talking with each other and manoeuvring themselves into the position where their chess pieces were going to go onto the table. Uh, that job, I think, has got a little harder over the years. Maybe not in Magnaia's case because he's such hot property, but... Uh, Tricky one. Well, uh, it fun. was uh, a huge bit of breaking news to come through uh, this morning on Monday as we record it. Um, 
I just want to move on to talking about um, KTM, if I may, and, and Tech 3, to be precise. And, and the, the two rookies, of course, this year, Remy Gardner, Raul uh, Fernandez. It's not been, when you talk about trying to impress, I suppose, not that they haven't impressed, but it's not been the smoothest of starts for, for either of those riders. Obviously, we've got Gardner dealing with his wrists, but particularly Raul Fernandez sort of calling it, uh, his testing off early after... Well, a huge accident in uh, turn 12 on, on the Saturday of testing. He then fell again after a few laps the day after. And I suppose the question comes back to a topic that, you know, we've spoken about far too many times. Should he have been prevented from from riding on the final day? Was he properly tested? Why was he allowed to come back out after such a huge shunt when clearly he wasn't fit and healthy enough to do that? You know, this is one of my pet hates and it will be one of those pet hates where, you know, if any of the hierarchy at Erta or Dorna listen to our podcast, which I think some do, um, they're going to hate me for this as well. I've banged this drum now for, since I came back into the paddock in 2014, I remember asking somebody quite high up in the, in the mechanism, if you like, and uh, it was after that, was it Aragon? Petrucci, I think he banged his head there and, and we spoke to him later in the day and he didn't know what day of the week it was. And I remember going to, to one of the top men and saying, how, how is that possible in today's, you know, modern thinking? Um, and he said, well, you know, he seemed okay. And I, I remember being absolutely shocked by the response that I got from high ups in, in the organisation. And I think that we still are not much beyond that. I think they're a little bit more aware now, but but you can't have these things happen um, and put people with effectively a head injury back out on a motorbike. You can't leave it to the rider. You can't leave it to the team even because the team will probably, if the rider insists, will allow him to go back out. Maybe that they shouldn't, but it shouldn't be left up to the team or up to the rider to make that decision. There should be a mechanism in place. Now, whether that has to be technology involved and it's out there the technology is readily available easy to come by it's in other sports i think nascar have had it for a while you know the the rate of deceleration or the the algorithm that it takes i mean i'm sure alpine stars could tell you exactly the kind of rate of the crash because the algorithms it takes to pop a, an airbag in the in the in the your leather suit is all set up the technology is there everything is there it's not it's not like it would be a difficult thing to do but it's simple to me if your body has gone through you know, a certain set of parameters, you're out. It's as simple as that. You are now removed from that weekend until further tests are done and you've proved you are compass mentors completely. It can't be any other way. You know, secondary injury is something that, you know, concussion is something that we've been discussing for some time. It don't, you don't have to be knocked out. I used to think that you only got concussion when you got knocked out. The amount of times I got knocked out, Clearly, from the way I speak, I've got a head injury. Um, it's one of them ones where I'm not sure how my health will be later in my life with the amount of bangs I've had on the head. My memory is not brilliant. Is that age or is that something to do with my injuries before? These elements need taken out of it. You don't need that, that doubt. You need to be proactive in these things. I mean, head injury, concussion, deceleration, whatever it is, is a major thing that we're not taking seriously enough in the premier class of motorcycle sport. And I don't understand why. There's plenty of money. Dorna are brilliant at just about everything they do. Look at the way they've managed the COVID thing over the last couple of years. I mean, it's just been outstanding the way they've managed governments, authorities that they've been racing on, teams that they've made do things that teams wouldn't normally do, comply with you know these particularly strict rules. Dorna have the capacity to be able to achieve this. Carlos Aspaleta, young man, uh, son of top man, um, he's he's a very, very sharp kid. I would have expected Carlos Espeleta to have taken a lead in this, to be frank with you, to name a name, one of the top names, because he is a modern era, smart young man that, that would easily have the power and the wherewithal to be able to put this in place. And I don't understand why it's not being put in place. There are some journalists that, that you know, Simon Patterson, I'll mention Simon Patterson, not a man that I've always agreed with, and he's never agreed with me either. It's just a relationship we've had over a long period of time. But I respect him hugely when he sticks his head above the turret and says what he says about this head injury situation. He pushes it every time. And I think that it, it needs pushing. It needs saying out loud, 
we need to do something in MotoGP where head injuries and the likelihood of that are taken much, much more seriously and we are much more proactive in how we deal with it. Well, what's curious about this as well, Pete, is that, you know, over the winter, there have been updates to to the medical uh, form that you have to follow following an incident like this, but with new requirements. But it just seems that obviously they, they haven't been followed through properly. That's exactly what I was going to say, Harry. Yeah, that, that's why it's so surprising, isn't it? That we've we've recently had this announcement that there's going, going to be stricter checks, unspecified exactly what they'll be, but that they will ask for more, more evidence exactly. about, you know, whether a rider is fit to return, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, you could see the. Why, why, why are they unspecified though, Pete? I mean, how can they be unspecified when we know exactly the situation here from not just our sport, but other sports, you know, you can take the lead from other, other, other sports that have already got these, these protocols in place and the measurement, the tools for measuring head injury or, or, or rather what would cause head in, in injury. I mean, I think that all of us, you know, are susceptible to a head, head injury, see, <laughs> excuse me, um, the susceptibility to, to deceleration or whatever it might be, a bang on the head, different people react in different ways. But there needs to be a parameter where that is taken away. You know, when you've reached that particular thump on the bonds, you're out of there for a, for a, for a period of time. Yeah, sure. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me, Keith. I mean, and just to give a silly little example of how you can have, let's say, some sort of head issue without being knocked out. I fell off a motocross bike once and gave myself a bit of a whack on the head, not knocked out. So, but, you know, felt pretty sick, went to casualty, everything fine, went home. About five, six hours later, I'm sat on a sofa watching TV, nobody else in the room. And it suddenly felt like the sofa was flipping over backwards. It, it just felt like someone was pulling the back of the chair, uh, you know, and I grabbed my hands on the side you know think and, and and it made me realize wow yeah that, that's it has had some sort of effect you know so it, it's a strange thing isn't it you, you don't know how people are going to react in what cases what timeline or whatever and as we saw you know it was bad enough for fernandez to have another accident so clearly yeah you know something needs to be done to put a stop to this but i've had exactly that same scenario on the sofa Came back from motocrossing, exactly the same, testing and practicing and messing around with the lads. Um, there's two examples. I wonder how many examples there are. If you've got everybody together in bike racing, how many examples of that we could come up with? There would be hundreds, if not thousands of them. Um, because we are susceptible as motorcycle racers to a bang on the head. Um, I just I just think that I, I'm, I'm surprised that we're in 2022 and we're still not quite there when it comes to the protocol that needs to... Nobody wants to take a rider out of a race. It's, it's almost like this COVID thing, isn't it? We're going to end up with, you know, you've flown in from wherever it is, you've done your test on your first day at the track, and lo and behold, you've got COVID. So you're taken out of the race. Th that's the ironic thing, though, isn't you it, know? Keith, that you could have no symptoms and be forced to miss the race because you fail a test, even though you, you are, by all intents and purposes, it seems physically fine. And yet you can have some kind of physical and mental symptoms after a heavy accident, and yet you're able to continue. That's that's the ironic thing at the moment. That's something that doesn't add up, does it? Well, talking of injuries, of course, uh, Mark Marquez back out on the bike after his uh, bit of a tumultuous winter, but looks like after two falls, that hasn't seemed to have triggered anything uh, with his eye injury that he uh, 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 sustained over the winter. But uh, this is sort of my way to coming on to a couple of listener questions because we had a lot of Mark Marquez fans uh, talking about how uh, you both think he will get on this year especially after this ropey start and how well you think the honda is slightly redesigned we've seen from the images out on track but they're not calling it a revolution well i think that you've hit the nail on the head i mean he's come back the bike's slightly different and we've already talked about how tricky the two tracks are that they've got to test and get data from the fact he's fell down is because he's pushing the boundaries as he has to as he should um brilliant that that it appears that his injury, his eye injury particularly, has not played up. But that is going to be a worry forever now. That's 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 there. Um, that susceptibility, he might go the entire year, be the full-on Mark Marquez, or he might not, depending on what happens during the course of the year. So that is going to be a worry for the rest of his career, I believe. Um, regarding the Honda, yeah, it's unusual. It's it's he's got to get used to what it's like, and he it isn't. It's not the same motorbike that he left when he finished off um, taking the sabbatical, if you like, through, through injury. 
Polis Bravo seems to be getting on with it all right, which I would have expected him to have got on all right with the last one, to be honest, you know, previously, but he didn't seem to quite as well as this one. Developments have moved on. Honda has moved on. But again, I've got to draw a line under the fact that we are testing at two tracks that aren't representative of what we're going to get from now on in. It's I, I just think that Sepang at 90 degree, 90% humidity on a two-day test and then Mandalika with the track falling apart and, and, and not quite where it needs to be with a one-metre-wide racing line um, is indicative of where we're headed. So Marquez pushed to the limit, otherwise he wouldn't have been falling down, but... I think he's going to be a contender this year. I've got a real feeling that Marquez will be back on it again. And uh, I, I, <laughs> I just think he's a, a matured version of the, of the Mark Marquez of before. And he's still going to be a massive weapon. I think that new Honda looks fast. I think the impressive thing about it is it's not just one rider that's been fast on it. As you say, Keith, bearing in mind, there's a lot we don't know. But still, all of the Honda riders seem to be saying the same kind of things and seem to, seem to be going quick on this bike. They like the rear grip, the extra rear grip. Pole keeps using this word safer. It's safer. You can get the speed without that risk that it that they were taking before going into the corners. And it's, I, I don't know, I think it looks good. I mean, when you looked at the race simulations, the LCR guys were actually the best on, on the last day in Indonesia, you know, in that heat. So, I mean, it's, you know that Mark is going to raise, when it comes to a race, he's going to pull something out of the bag, isn't he? And if that bike is... It's got a strong engine. We should say that as well. It's not too far off the new Ducati, it seems. I mean, that's one thing we can take from testing is the straight line speed. And it's, it's, it's close to the Ducati. And I think if that bike is a bit safer, it looks like it's close enough to the Ducati. You've got to imagine that Mark will pull out the magic. I think the bigger question mark is, you know, can Paul carry this momentum into the season? Bear in mind, this, this new Honda, it, it hasn't just done these two tests. They've been testing it since Misano last year. They really put this big effort in. So this bike, it's been used at uh, Misano, Jerez, Sepang, Mandalika. So it, it's got, they've got more of a range of data on this bike. And it does seem like, you, you know, they've been quite cautious what they're saying. But it, I think that, that all of the riders believe it's certainly a step better. But nobody knows exactly how much until a race happens today. Well, also uh, being asked from uh, our excellent listeners on the subject of uh, Yamaha and how uh, we've already said, you know, they don't look to quite have perhaps the outright pace and, and clear of the field that uh, we might have expected. Maybe Speed of Conviction has asked, does Yamaha uh, need Fabio more or does Fabio need Yamaha more? Huh. I think that's pretty obvious, judging by the fact that he's been the fastest Yamaha man by a big margin often. Um I think Quattararo really you know, saved Yamaha's bacon last year. And I think we might be heading that way again this year. We'll wait and see. But um, I'm, I'm surprised that Yamaha don't seem to have made the progress that, that even Quattararo was expecting uh, in the overall performance of the motor. Um, the Yamaha is probably the most beautiful motorbike to ride. I mean, like, it seems to do generally everything you want, everywhere you want it to do it. But those extremes, it's a funny thing, you know, when you race motorbikes. I mean, I've had motorbikes that um, are really, really nice to race, real good, good everywhere. But you still want the one that's edgy and wants to kill you. That, that's the bike you want, or the, the one that's just got that little bit more. And if you can ride it, you'll get that little bit more from it. And that's always been the, the Honda situation with Marquez. You know, he's able to extract that little bit extra because it's there for him if he's brave enough, if he's good enough to use it. Um, I think the, the Yamaha is probably a slightly more milder motorbike overall. And when I'm talking mild, I'm talking like minute detail, minute amount of, of difference, really. But but it is the difference. You know, sometimes those full-on factory bikes are absolute animals to ride. But once you've got that, once you can extract that extra little percentage out of it, that's what makes the difference to... to permanently putting it on the podium it's a surprise isn't it harry that i mean quattro has been saying since what midway through last year maybe before he just wants more horsepower more top speed the one thing he's been asking for and and he hasn't got it and it's i think right up until the eve of the sepang test there's, there's the team launch just before the official sepang test and the the team manager massimo merigali very respected guy ex-racer himself even he said you know the top priority was to improve the the straight line performance so you know you're thinking right well they've got something here you know let's see when they go on track tomorrow and then 
you see the top speeds coming through and you realize they're no better off than they were before. This Quattararo, he gave the figure of nine kilometers an hour at Mandalika, this was. He said, well, look, it was that last year and it's it's the same today. And I mean, it, it's almost like, the, I don't know, the, everyone knew what Quattararo wanted except the, the engineers at Yamaha. I don't know exactly what happened there. And that's what comes back to what I was saying earlier on. You know, if you've got a motorcycle that over one lap, when you've got no one else around you, Quattararo can put a very fast lap time in. When you've got other riders that can get a nine kilometers an hour bike underneath you into a braking area or somewhere else where you can interfere with your lap, your lap time will be much slower because, you know, you're not able to take that perfect line that you want to be able to take on your slightly slower Yamaha because you've got a Honda underneath you, you've got a Ducati underneath you. It's all very well doing a one lap wonder when you're um, when you're testing on your own with a bit of space and maybe a bit of a slipstream you can pull on somebody somewhere. But as soon as you get into a race where you've got other people all over the racetrack in, in, in you know, pertinent areas, it's a, it's a real problem for Yamaha, I think. And that's why Quattararo will have wanted that extra little bit of horsepower just to give him the chance to to open up the possibilities in a we race. We should also say just about Yamaha, a bit of a surprise, that the project leader's been promoted out of the team, hasn't he? Uh, Sumi. So they finally win the world championship, their first one since 2015. And, and basically, it sounds like he's off to a to a desk job in Japan. He's going to, I think he's going to become a general manager of the motorsports division or, or something like that. So again, you've got, if you're Quattararo, you, your pen's hovering on a contract, perhaps. You haven't got the top speed. You've got this uncertainty of losing the top guy in the race team. Uh, now, the replacement, I think it's a, it's a guy called Seki. He's, he's come from within the team. So he's someone that's known to them. But still, it's just another little change that perhaps might catch you off guard. You can understand why Quattararo might just wait and see how this bike does in the first few races before he decides what he wants to do. He'd be wise to do that, wouldn't he? Where will Quattararo go? I said it, Quattararo. 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 Sorry, I knew I was thinking the whole mind. How am I going to say this? How am I going to say this? And I'm bugging it up. Fabio. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I should say, actually, that, that Fabio, you're on the good subject. He's, although he's saying, look, this is a, a big sort of issue that we've got this top speed. He's not in any way down or sulky or, you know, he's his usual chirpy self. He's saying, well, look, there's no point pondering about it or worrying about it we haven't got the top speed we'll just have to adapt as we did last year so you know he's not although he clearly hasn't got what he wanted and what he was making clear he he, he didn't come across as sort of downbeat or, or anything in, in sort of dealing with us behind closed doors and what he might be saying there who knows but certainly you know it wasn't a you know a, a downbeat Fabio Quattararo in testing and he was fast let's be honest he, he, he did look again as Keith was saying clearly the fastest Yamaha rider You've got to say that Yamaha need him at the moment more than he needs them. Yeah, and it's well, it's certainly tight, isn't it? Just based off te uh, testing, and uh, Andy Preston has uh, said that given there's going to be between four and six Ducatis in the top ten uh, for this year, the championship is surely going to be Mr. Consistency in much the way 2020 was for Joanne Mir. Do you think that's a fair assessment of how the season will go? It's motorbike racing. I noticed that Pete didn't jump on that one too quickly. <laughs> I mean, Ducati, again, we talked about data earlier on. To have more motorbikes in the field you know, with quality riders on them, you're going to be pulling in all of that data early. The thing is to get yourself in a position where, you know, Friday afternoon, you're in a position. You're moving forward as, a, as, a, as an entity. And Ducati have obviously got that one fairly well covered. You know, and so consistently over the year, you would expect Ducati to be the team really i would expect them to be the team um top riders bikes are good more bikes on the track than anybody else it's got to be something that, that is is going to be an advantage for ducati ktm have fallen behind a little bit you alluded to it earlier on with the, the you know the tech 3 ktm uh, garage you know a little bit at sea at the moment you know obviously the wrist injury for remy gardner that's not how you want to start your uh, year in motor gp that's for sure you know, I think that there's there's plenty of work to be done at KTM at the minute. And all that progress they made so quickly went up in smoke virtually in the second half of last year. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how they respond to that. Um, and again, concessions. There's still only Aprilia that have got concessions. And they're right up there at the minute. I mean, concessions to anybody that, that, that doesn't know too much about MotoGP or hasn't watched this podcast before. Concessions are something that teams have depending on uh, the, the performance that they've had in, in 
past races and Aprilia, because their performances have only just started to come good, have got concession. They got they're able to to bring new parts to to each and every racetrack, you know, performance parts and the like. They can change their motorbikes through the year, whereas everyone else is going to be locked in with the performance of their motorbikes come Qatar. That's it. Uh, once we've got to Thursday at Qatar, I think it's um, it's all done and dusted. Whatever you've got, that's what you're running for the rest of the year. No engine modifications at all. Um, but Aprilia have got opportunities to make changes. Now, to see Aprilia going as well as they are in these early tests, again, with that proviso underneath it that I've said a thousand times already, you can't rely on the tests as a true performance factor for the rest of the year, in my view. Alicia Spargro is a man that makes a motorbike go fast over a, over a short period of time, over a, a one lap or two lap set session so we would have expected that maverick vinales at the beginning of every year is always the fastest man and so he's up there on the aprilia as well but these are misleading in my view indicators for the rest of the year um it's going to be a tight year but ducati definitely have an advantage for me i think the interesting thing with the ducati sorry harry is that the gp21 you've almost got this crossover haven't you but i think we thought the 22 would come in and instantly be, be better but at the moment it seems like they're pretty much at the same level coming into the start of this season. The new engine seems to be taking some setting up uh, engine braking issues. I think some of the GP22 guys were having and things like that. So you've got guys on this 21 that, that I mean, Banyai described it as perfect by the end of last year, going into a season with this bike that's fine tuned, working really well, great top speed. But that's data. It's again, it's data. They're not getting the kind of data they want from the first first tests that they've had this year. I mean, it's a situation where they, you know, you, that's what the techs need. It's what I said again earlier on in this conversation was that forget about the riders. Yeah, they're going to be grumpy that they can't do what they want to do and put in the best times. But you imagine what it's like being a tech at the minute, trying to read through all that electronic information and trying to put that right in on racetracks that aren't evolving. I mean, quite often you can end up with a situation where. Yeah, a bike goes faster on a racetrack, looks good on a race time, and you think, right, now let's put it back to what it was previously just to rule out the fact that it's rider development, that it's a rider that's got faster on a racetrack. You know, it's a moving target all of the time. You, you, know, you might think as a tech that you've hit the nail on the head when your rider starts going faster by a couple of tenths or whatever it is, but if you're stuck him back on the, the previous setting that you had and he goes just as fast, you know it's him, not you. It's a proper, proper... You know, like I say, it's a it's a conundrum that, that I don't think the techs have really got had the time this year so far. I feel sorry for them. I really do. It's a, it's a tough job being out there on a racetrack at the moment, trying to get to get these motorcycles going how they want them to go with the lack. I think of the testing. promising thing for the Aprilia, just going back to that, is it was fast straight away as soon as it came onto the track. A bit like the Honda, and that's as you say, Keith, taking aside timesheets and everything else, just that initial impression that the riders have. And they were saying when Savadori rolled that bike out of the pits at Sepang for the shakedown test, it went well. And it stayed pretty much in the top three right the way through the shakedown, the official test. So it's a promising start for Aprilia. As you say, Aleix also said exactly what you're saying, Keith. He said, look, racing is different to testing. He's also concerned about being held up in the corners by the other bikes. He thinks that the Aprilia is better on its own, really, at the moment. But again, he said, you don't know until you have a race. Benales looks, be looks, looks quicker than he was last year let's say but he's saying i'm a long way off being com fully comfortable on this bike yet you've got ktm they've made big changes to the project small changes to the bike is almost how it appears isn't it and as you say they're the ones that at least on the timesheets are clearly playing catch up at the moment they seem to be wanting to give danny pedroza a lot more let's say influence on the development process the concessions thing as you were saying keith i think that really sort of knocked them for six more than we realized last year and as pit byer was saying you know we can't be testing chassis in, on Friday morning with the race team. You know, we've got to get away from that before they could do with concessions, hire a track, take the race team, test the parts, and then go to the race weekend knowing what they've got. They couldn't do that last year, and I think it sort of wrong-footed them. So they need Danny Pedrosa to handle more of that. He's going to be at more races, talking to the riders, understanding what they need, and sort of trying to take away that. As Pitbio put it, the race team has to race. And, and I think that's where the changes at KTM and then they're doing these sort of they're swapping parts they're being careful not to make big changes now will that be enough we need to wait and see but it's certainly it's it's it perhaps it's you know they've gone from making new bike new bike new bike as you would expect for a, a manufacturer that's just coming into the sport now they're into that kind of refinement phase 
But um, but yeah, they certainly. I mean, Glad Binder, he seemed happier. Reattraction is what the one thing they were looking for. He seemed to have found a bit of that. That was the one thing that you were lacking at Mandalika with all that dirt and dust. So it gave him a chance to work on that at least. As always uh, with this podcast, time escapes us. Uh, but we do have uh, time for one more listener question. Thank you so much for sending them all in as well. This one is from Andrew Hiley. Um about the tracks, as all of the tracks now have this green tarmac strip around them, should they now get rid of the curbs entirely? They're slippery, they get wet, and they're dangerous. Um, is it just better to have the green tarmac, which is off limits to the riders? Well, you've got a problem there on several fronts, haven't you? Because a lot of these tracks are not just um, exclusive to motorcycle racing. There's also the carboys that we've got to look after as well, which is I mean, they give us give us a fair amount of respect when it comes to what we want from a racetrack. They don't always like the way that motorbikes have a track set for, for them. Um, it's the same the other way around. It's, it's a compromise all of the time. So um, removing the curbs, I can't see that happening most of the time. Um, track limits is a massive issue. And being old school, you know, you can't have a strip of grass like an old school person would normally say because it's unsafe and safety has to be paramount so it has to be tarmac it has to be grippy um, track limits have to be an electronically monitored thing which goes against the grain again for an old schooler like me you know in it was it was a self penalty if you drifted off the line back in the day because you were trying to sort out a motorbike that was trying to throw you through the fence if you went offline Nowadays, you've got that massive safety area that you can roll out onto and wait to cop a penalty from somebody looking at a monitor or checking out a, a sensor. Um, it's the way of things. We're in 2022. It's how it has to be. Um, I don't see... There are some racetracks where certainly you could change. For instance, when that white line comes across a little early and, and you get a penalty for crossing over the white line, touching a bit of the green or whatever it might be, when there is no gain to actually be had by by being over there. So therefore, it shouldn't necessarily be penalised. Those kind of little things. I'm thinking places like Mizano, where you've got that, you know, onto the straight of Mizano, and you've got that little triangle of greenery that it's almost through laziness. You come out the corner, you've done everything. It's all there. All you've got to do is tuck in and squirt the throttle, but you've just run across the green because you can. It's not because you want to or have to. It's just the way it is. And so I think those things need tidying up to some extent. Um, but other than that, I don't think we're going to see some major changes. Yeah, I think it's, well, I'd almost go with the opposite of what the person was saying in the question. I think that the track limits should only be where there's a curb for exactly the reasons that Keith has said. I don't, I think when you just have this racetrack and then the green paint and a penalty, it, it, it's, it's, too, it's too small a margin. At least when you've got some curbing in between, the rider knows he's on the curb. He knows he's, he's, he's near the edge of the track. So at least there's something there to tell the rider, look, you know, you're right on the limit now. When you haven't got the curb, it's just it's just tarmac and, and then a bit of paint. Well, you know, I think it's too easy to accidentally or, you know, without consequence, drift into the green. As exactly as Keith says, maybe just returning from the curb and you just touch it. So I'd actually go the other way. I would say no track limits unless you've got some curbing to actually separate it from the racetrack. I think that would be better. Well, there you go, Andrew. There's your there's your answer. Um, that just about does it for our, our first proper episode, I suppose, of uh, of season two. We're officially back in action because we will be back next week and pretty much every week after that, I think, until someone says, please, please, God, stop, uh, because the MotoGP season <laughs> is back uh, and Qatar gets underway next weekend. And we'll be here uh, to preview that before and review it straight after as well. In the meantime, you can, of course, keep up to date with everything that's going on in MotoGP land and beyond on the Crash.net website. Uh, and any questions uh, you've got, as always, send them in all the usual ways. Comment section, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook us. Just search Crash Moto GP. Uh, do make sure you uh, subscribe to the Crash Moto GP YouTube channel as well, because that's where we are in vision and in sound. You can hear us on all usual podcast players. Just make sure uh, you leave us a review if you liked it as well. But I think that just about does it from me, Harry Benjamin, Keith Ewan and Pete McLaren. Thank you very much, gents. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. And cut. Thank you, Jen.
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.